0: Last week, the University of South Carolina's Collaborative for Race and Reconciliation hosted its annual Equity Summit here in Columbia. We, as the Episcopal Church in Upper South Carolina, was a sponsor of that event. And so we spent two days looking at those communities and people making an impact in the world of equity and justice across the Southeast. Uh, Our lunchtime conversation one day was Dr. Catherine Meeks. She's an Episcopalian. She serves as the executive director of the Absalom Jones Center for Racial Healing in Atlanta, Georgia. wanted to share with you her conversation with us about moving from racial reconciliation to racial healing. Hope you enjoy this talk by Dr. Meeks on this edition of Make, Equip, and Send, The Stories That Shape EDUSC. I am really grateful to have this opportunity and to have the opportunity to learn about the wonderful work that so many people are doing in various parts of the country. In this particular moment that we find ourselves in the 21st century, it's really important for us to pay attention to the good things that are going on. Because if we just watch the news, we could think that there's nothing good happening. And it's really, if you don't, uh, if you don't believe me, pay attention to how much better you feel when you turn the news off. And that will help you to know that it's really important to bal- have some balance. Because a lot of this 24-hour news cycle is just um, almost like pouring pouring poison into your psyche and so focusing upon the good stuff that's being done and the good people that are in this country trying to do the work is really important for being able to maintain some kind of balance and peacefulness so that we can keep doing what we need to do because if you don't do that it is a very short walk into despair and then you just become a part of the problem instead of having anything to do with the solution. So I want to um, say again how excited I am to hear about things that are going on. Every time anybody sends me any piece of positive information about folks doing stuff to dismantle, destabilize, and deconstruct racism, I am always delighted. So what I want to talk about for a little bit with you today is um, moving from racial reconciliation to racial healing. So one of the things that I have come to understand now that I've been doing this work for the last 50 years, and i come to this work as a a person who grew up in Arkansas with a sharecropping father and a school teacher mother who graduated from college the same year that from high school. So my mother taught me a whole bunch about perseverance and sticking to it until you get to the end of your goal. When my mom picked up my dissertation as I was graduating from getting my PhD from Emory, she looked at it and said you really did have to know a lot of words to do this, didn't you? And she didn't realize how many other things I had to know in order to do that. But I learned to severe from my I learned from my father who lived with post traumatic stress syndrome because my 12 year old brother had died at at 12 because of and poverty we lived in arkansas My brother was sick and was refused treatment in the local hospital. And they had to take him to what was called the charity hospital. And by the time, which was 75 miles away. And by the time they got him there, he, it was too late and my brother died. My father never recovered from that. So my father lived, lived his entire rest of his life with post syndrome. And I learned from that watching my father interact father, that I was not going to be somebody who was disempowered and have some external force due to me, it had done to my father. So that's the foundation out of which I have come to be the person that feels very called to be doing this work, and I've been doing it since I was a kid in college. I'm 73, so that's 50 years. I don't do this work because it's a good academic discipline. I do it because I have no choice, because I, it's a vocation, and it's a vocation that I will do, stay with until I'm no longer on this earth. So in the process of this long journey of trying to understand what, where I need to be and what I need to be thinking and doing around race, I have come to the realization that we should not talk about doing racial reconciliation until we do racial healing. Because one of the things about that is, if you're talking about African Americans, if you're talking about Native Indigenous people and relationships between white people, there have never been any. Those transactional things that went on between Native Indigenous people who, we call, who were called Indians, and African-Americans, had nothing to do with relationship. Just because you put people in proximity together does not equal to a relationship. Relationships have to do with respect, regard, honoring, and, and equity. A willingness to see I'm as good as you, you're as good as me, and we are interacting with each other. We have come together to care and respect one another. That did not happen with between white people and native indigenous people. It did not happen between white people and African Americans. And it's not happening between white people and Latino and and brown people now in the 21st century. So you can't reconcile what didn't exist. The relationship didn't exist talk about reconciling it and i know that when you all use that word you don't use it as loosely as it's used in the religious community where we like to have racial reconciliation day you know we go get a black choir and bring them to a white church and, and a black preacher and that's racial reconciliation day and 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 we have these little gatherings and we say we're doing racial reconciliation, we're not getting down to the core of the woundedness that exists both in black and white and brown and native indigenous people around the construct of this indefensible paradigm of white supremacy. We live in a country that's constructed upon that indefensible principle of white skin being superior. Now, progressive white folks don't like that fact, but it is a fact that the country is constructed that way. And so you can, if you don't like it, then you just need to make sure are resisting it and working at the, saying no, it's not the way I think the world ought to be. But the fact of it is you can't change its reality just because you don't like it. Because we know that all the systems that have been set up in this country were set up to benefit people with white skin and to, to disenfranchise people who didn't have white skin. So given that fact, And given the history, given the denigration, given the woundedness that has come from slavery, from lynching, and continues with the death penalty and the prison industrial complex, and with the 21st century police killings, given those, that narrative and given the history, we have to get beyond these nice little kinds of platitudes that allow us to act like we're just gonna try to figure out how to get along. We have to begin to talk about what the wounds are about and we begin to, first of all, own the wounds and then begin to look for how to begin to address them. So at the Center for Racial Healing, the Episcopal, Absalom Jones Episcopal Center for Racial Healing, we say that, that we've, we have created a space, a brave space. A brave space, not a safe space. A brave space where the truth can be told. And brave spaces are self-safe spaces because there is a commitment to respect and regard. So whoever comes through our door is going to be welcomed, is going to be respected, and will hear the truth. And we will listen to them and respect their understanding of the truth. But we will not create this, oh kind of place where we want to make sure that every time we talk about race, everybody feels good. You're not always going to feel good when the conversation about race is over. And that's not even the point. Sometimes in order to get well, you go through stuff that doesn't feel so good like having surgery because you have cancer. The surgery doesn't feel good, but it's way more important to do the surgery than it is not to. So I think that... um, my realizing that it's so important to begin to try to create spaces and have conversations where we really begin to look at what is it that stands between us and and actually getting well and part of it is all of the narratives and stuff that that are in our heads, the stories, the ways in which we look at the world. We we want to act like we can just walk in the room and they somehow go away and we can all be together. But the real truth is we have to process with one another some of those stories, the ways that we've looked at things, the ways in which we have internalized negative messages about one another. And to own those, you start by owning it for yourself. I like to talk about that it's important to pay attention to your inner community. It's important to pay attention to who lives in your inner community. What are the stories, what are the narratives, what kinds of little folks are running around in your head telling you how you ought to see things and, and how you ought to assess particular Events and and getting to know who's in your inner community is a significant piece of the work that has to be done in working on what you begin to project out into the world. Now there's a whole big complicated branch of psychology that talks about this that I don't have time to get into. So you just have to take my word for the fact that there is an inner community. And, and, and if you pay attention to yourself, you know, like Flip Wilson used to say, you know, the devil made me do it. It was not the devil. It was those little people running around in his, in his inner psychic community that were coming up to, to mess him up. And, and even in scripture, it talks about doing what I don't want to do when I, don't, when I want to do something else. What I want to do, I don't do. And what I don't want to do, I do. It's that kind of internal conflict of those counter-narratives that are running around inside of us. The things that we've learned. The ideas that we picked up from here, there, and yonder. That we really do need to be able to know what they are on the back of his Truck. Do I want to live my life being controlled by the, my reaction to that, or do I want to deal with what that's all about and figure out where I want to stand so I can pass by a pickup truck with a white guy driving it with a, a beer can and a, and a gun and not have to invest energy in that? There, there are so many pieces that we all need to explore and try to figure out where we are. And it boils down to, do we want to be well people? Do we really? I mean, the the simple matter of fact question is, do all of us who walk around in this country as black, white, brown, and whatever, want to be well? And if we want to be well, we have to uncover this stuff that keeps us making projections and interacting with each other on the basis of those projections instead of taking the time and having the courage to find out who that person is who doesn't look like us. That's about racial healing. If we do that work, we might actually have some reconciliation down the road. We might actually build some relationships that are worth something and not based upon some kind of projections of, you know, we did this or that and and now we're okay. Progressive white people need to realize that when they come up against black and brown power, and find themselves in a tight rub because they weren't quite prepared for that even though they thought they were really quite progressive. And and there are plenty instances of that and if people tell the truth, you all probably have a story about it. That kind of thing, when you catch yourself realizing that you're not as progressive as you thought you were. When people of color find themselves saying, all white people do so and so, you need to be stopping and asking yourself, how did you get to know what all white people do? When was the last time you met all of the white people on the earth, you know? So yeah, you've had some experiences with people who've done this, this, and this. And then the 15th person you meet doesn't do that. But you can't let them be who they are because you made up your mind that all of them are this way. That keeps you from being well. Because you're not open, you're not free, you're not ready to engage people as you meet them. Because there are many wonderful people walking around that we need to be willing to connect to. This is not a... Let's, you know, let's just um, try to all get well and, and then not worry about all the stuff that's wrong in the world. I am an activist, I am an advocate, I do not believe that the ways in which we have constructed these systems to disenfranchise people has anything to do with the way the world was intended to be. So I think we have to stand against that. But I do believe that we have to be resistors and I believe that if we're not resisting, we're in complicity. We, there are two two choices as far as I'm concerned. We're either resisting it or we're we're acquiescing to structures that need to be deconstructed and destabilized. But if you go out into the world to deconstruct and destabilize and you don't know a, a whole lot about who you're taking out into the world, then you just end up making a mess. And if you look at the mess we have right now in 2019 in the United States of America around race, it won't be too hard for you to believe what I'm saying is the truth. We have been working at getting rid of racism in this country for all of these years and and we are so far from being there. We are so far from being there. And part of the reason why we are far from being there is because we didn't worry too much about getting well ourselves. We just thought, that if we could fix the voting rights and housing and this and that, that everything would be fine. We didn't account for how many folks were, with their brokenness would be trying to destabilize whatever gains were made. So it's not like either or. You don't get to just work on getting well. And do nothing else. I mean, because we, you know, we as uh, good capitalist Americans love to have categories and we love to have hierarchies and we love to set up stuff and be able to check off boxes. This is not a box that can be checked off. It is a lifetime journey of internal interrogation and then outward action. So we go out into the world. We do the contemplative work. We do the exploratory work, and then what we see there helps to encourage us, inform us, and give us the strength and and sense of agency that makes it possible to go out into the world and do what needs to be done. To go out into the world and fight whatever kind of battles. But we know who we took out into the world, and we know who we brought home because we we have paid attention to our inner community. So if you don't remember anything else about what I've said today, except that you've got a community that you you may or may not be real acquainted with, and if you're real acquainted with it, you know exactly what I'm talking about. If you're not, it's a good thing for you to pay a little attention to, to just explore for a bit and look at yourself and watch yourself in the days and weeks to come to just kind of see how some of this plays out. To walk around with a set of feelings and thoughts and ways of being in the world that are determined by externals is to give your life over to stuff that you don't have any control over. And you can't be well if you let externals control your life. There is no way, because then you're, whatever wind blows is the wind that you are affected by, affected in ways that you don't have any control over, because you've set yourself up to just be always reacting and uh, responding to stimuli that's outside of yourself. Recently, one of my good friends, who's a bishop in our church, told me, that he'd spent a lot of time counseling with white men who are just having such a horrible time because things are changing and the st- status of white skin is, is going down, you know? Because then pretty soon it's gonna, white people will be a minority in this country. And that message has just stressed out some people who were totally invested in white superiority being part of their identity. So if that's part of your identity, That's a pretty sad thing. That's an external that needs to be dealt with. But one of the things he said was that these guys had come and they had talked about how they just didn't see themselves being worthy, having anything hardly to do anymore, and being worthy, and they were just so challenged by that fact of how things are changing around white skin, the perception, And and what occurs to me from that is how sad it is to have the essence of your sense of yourself defined by that one single fact that's an external fact in many ways the color of your skin only i mean your skin color of course contributes to your understanding of yourself but if that's the essence of it you have not made the journey from your head to your heart and that's a very important journey to take if you want to live on this earth with any kind of sense of peace. So as we go forward to do the great work of making the world a better place to live, we need to make sure that we carry uh, an, an inner community with us that's got some sense of being on the road toward healing. Because I believe that sustainable activism is fueled by the fires of internal awareness and internal connection in ways to all parts of ourselves, so we know what we're doing, we know what we're after, we know who we are, and we know Where we stand. And so even if the project that I'm working on doesn't turn out too well, I don't have to be devastated because my whole life is not defined by that project, no matter what that project happens to be. So I want to, um, I want to read you this lovely poem because I believe that poetry is so critical and my friend David White who wrote this poem says that poetry is a language against which there is no defense. And I love that because we are so good at all of us and particularly our, us with our amazing uh, access to education and resources, we're good to talking ourselves out of things or uh, define words, but poetry kind of, you hear the words, but it it operates on two levels. So it's in your head, but it also gets in your heart. And while you thought you just dismissed it, before you know it, you wake up one morning and one of those words will be running through your head because it is a language against which there is no defense. So the poem is called Second Life. My uncourageous life doesn't want to go, doesn't want to speak, doesn't want to carry on, wants to make its way through life simply, wants to assume the strange and dubious honor of not being heard. My uncourageous life doesn't want to move, doesn't even want to stir, wants to inhabit a difficult form of stillness, to pull everything into the silence where the throat strains but gives no voice. My uncourageous life wants to stop the whole world and keep it stopped, not only for itself, but for everyone and everything it knows, refusing to stir a single inch until given an exact and final destination. (laughs) This uncourageous second life wants to win some undeserved lottery so that it can finally bestow a just and final reward upon itself. No, this second life never wants to write or speak or cook or set the table or welcome guests or sit up talking with a stranger who might accidentally set us traveling again. This second life doesn't want to leave the door doesn't want to take any path that works its own sweet way through mountains, doesn't want to follow the beckoning flow of a distant river, nor meet the chance weather where, where a past takes us from one discovered world to another. This second life just wants to lie down, close its eyes, and tell God it has a headache. <laughs> but my other life, My first life, the life I admire and want to follow, looks on and listens with some wonder and even extends a reassuring hand for the one holding back. Knowing there can be no real confrontation without the need to turn away and go back away away from it all to have things be different and to close our eyes until they are different. No, this hidden life, this first courageous life, seems to speak from silence and in the language of a knowing, beautiful heartbreak. Above all, it seems to know well enough it will have to give back everything received in any form and even sometimes as it tells the story of the way ahead, laughs out loud in the knowledge this first life seems sure and steadfast in knowing it will come across the help it needs at every crucial place and thus continually sharpens my sense of impending revelation. This first courageous life, in fact, has already gone ahead, has nowhere to go except out the door into the clear air of morning, taking me with it, nothing to do except to breathe while it can, no way to travel, but with that familiar pilgrim movement in the body. Nothing to teach except to show me on the long road how we sometimes like to walk alone, open to the silent revelation. And then stop and gather and share everything as dark comes in, telling the story of a day's accidental beauty. And perhaps most intriguingly and most poignantly and most fearfully of all. And at the very end of the long road, long road it has traveled, it wants me, it wants to take me to a high place from which to see with a view looking back on the way we took to get there. So it can have me understand myself as witness and thus bequeath me the way ahead so it can teach me how to invent my own disappearance. So it can lie down at the end and show me, even against my will, how to undo myself, how to surpass myself, and how to find a way to die of generosity. I love that poem. I love it. And I want to, um, to invite you to use the event of this two days, two and a half days of being together, to not only uh rejoice in the great work that's being done to make things better in the external world, but also to use this time to be reflective, to be reflective of what you're doing, and what you're after, and what it's got to do with your journey, and what is the makeup of your inner community, and what does it need for your inner community to be liberated in the same ways that you're working for Outer Liberation. I would invite you to use this time to become a part, continue if you're already doing that, and if you're not already doing it, to become a catalyst to you, to start to do that. Because you know, sometimes we think we're in doing work for one reason, and if we do a really deep dive into reflecting, we find out we were mistaken about why we were doing it. It is always important, as my great uh, mentor and spiritual leader, uh, Howard Thurman says, it's always important to know what you're after and to know why you're after it. Because when it all, when everything is said and done and you're in your house all by yourself, you have got nobody but yourself to look at and reflect upon who lives in this body, who is this person, and what is this person doing? and why and the answers to those questions end up to be far more important than what did the person what did you do out there in the external world because you are the person who has to live with those answers more intimately than anybody else has to so I, I just pray great peace and grace to you and that you will be encouraged and inspired and that you will go back to your respective places with some new energy and look at the work you're doing and see wh- what, it, what else is being asked of you, particularly as we come into this time of Advent for some of us and and just holidays for others to pay attention to what this kind of space might be asking of you. It is so important. If if we want to have an earth that makes more sense, we have got to have well people living on it and working on it. And just the... the destabilizing of systems will not cure our inner woundedness. So go in peace, to really be courageous, brave explorers, and to learn how to die of generosity. Thank you.